Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1005. Um, hey, if you came to Wise Guys this past weekend in Salt Lake City or Zany's the previous weekend in Nashville, I just want to say thanks. Um, the shows have been so much fun because I've been... Uh, noodling around with a guitar on stage, which the idea terrifies me, um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. And it's been really fun. Uh, I've been doing some music in the set. A lot of people don't know that I do that. Um, I used to do that with my uh, my buddy Mike Furman. And uh, and I kind of wanted to see if I could, but he always played all the instruments because he is a master at everything musical, and I am not. <laughs> but I'm trying to get I'm trying to get good at it. But it's been really fun. So I've been. Uh, messing around with songs on stage and then also just being able to come out and um and and say hi to people after shows and and give hugs and sign pops and stuff has been been really fun so you know again never hesitate to ask to take a picture ask me to sign something i don't care if it's i mean i'll I'll sign anything (laughs) it doesn't even have to be anything i'm involved with i'm just happy to do it and uh and i appreciate you and thank you so much for coming out and the next shows are in uh in late July, I'll be at the Addison Improv, uh, just out, just outside of Dallas, and then the following month in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so uh, that information will be at id10t.com, along with some ID10 t-shirts. Grab a shirt, support the podcast, and then we're going to start putting some other fun pop culture stuff on there real, real soon. But now let's talk about you, the ID10t listener, and the corkboard events at id10t.com. Like Justin, who writes, I'm finally going through with going to school for game design. Currently, I'm working with a small team of people trying to make a game for those who struggle with issues such as depression, anger, dysmorphia, etc. I really want to be able to make a game to help those to cope with whatever they may be struggling with and help others understand those who do struggle with stuff like that. I'm currently trying my best to get the ball rolling on this project some more. So if anyone is feeling generous, you can find me Twitch. uh, uh, Twitch, basically, the username is PhantomFlyer09. Any tips, donations will help me and my team. Uh, Thank you, Justin. Kristen writes, I want to write in to promote something cool some of my friends are doing. They're doing a podcast where they play Dungeons & Dragons. They take premises from famous movies and recreate them by playing D&D 5e. Uh, It's a fun thing that they are excited about. I want to let you know, and maybe you can let your listeners know. Absolutely, Kristen. I'm so glad you are sharing this. This is a great idea. It's called Reboots and Dragons, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. That sounds fantastic. So uh, thanks to all who send in. Again, again, events at ID10T.com. This episode is Mark Manson, who wrote an amazing book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which 
has so many people have read, so many people I see recommend online in a lot of the self-help uh, websites and subreddits. Um, it, it's, I, I've read it, um, I've recommended it to people, they've recommended it back to me. It's just a really, I mean, it, it's not a, just a gimmicky title. It is a very thorough and useful uh, book which sort of lays out, you know, where and we talk a lot about it in the podcast, but you know where it is a value to place your giving a fuckedness and when you just should let things go and what we have to accept about you know things in life and so it's just it's a phenomenal book and um, I was connected to him through uh, my friend Ryan Holiday uh, who wrote The Obstacle Is the Way and a bunch of other books uh, that you should also read and Mark has a new book called Everything Is Fucked a book about hope. And uh, I had never met Mark before. We had just had some email exchanges, and he was phenomenal. He doesn't come off like a guru, and he doesn't want to be a guru. He's a guy who has lived life, made mistakes, written about it, and is really kind of a, a practical philosopher, I guess is the best way to to describe what I think that it is he does. And um, so open and so uh, so great. So if you're a fan of his work then I think you will really enjoy this podcast because we go deep on a lot of things. And then if you're not, then by all means, give it a chance and then go uh, get his books. Um, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and now is available now. Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. We recorded this months ago, but the book didn't come out until a few weeks ago. So I had held it um, until to, just to make sure the book was available. Um, so uh, that's why there's a little bit of a time delay in the release of the podcast. So there you go. Um, thanks for listening to episode number 1005 with Mark Manson. Let's roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. Yeah, there's just a passage in there that I thought was really fun that I wanted okay. to to so, reference. So yeah, the the thing that's messed up about this galley, about my galley, is uh, uh, I was explaining to her the galleys are like beta tests. Yeah. Of, of books, um, the font changes. Chapter three and chapter four, <laughs> it's a sans serif font, and then chapters one, two, and then five through nine or whatever, it's serif and. You know, I, just as a fun exercise, you should just have the font be different in every section of the book for not really for a reason to just as a social experiment to see what reasons people came <laughs> up with that because they would think that you did that for a reason. Yeah, right. Um, it's funny, too, because I complain to them and they're like, oh, wow, well, you know, we're going to have to like paginate the whole book again. And the production <laughs> team, like, I don't know if there's enough time for that. And I'm like, are you guys fucking insane? Like... <laughs> Like, I know how much money you spent on this book. Like, you really want to put out a book with, like, two chapters of a different font. You can still read the words. Yeah. I know, but it's weird. Like, what, what are you thinking? Like, stay in. Like, work late one night. It'll be fine. And then the notes you'll get will be some sort of weird, like, do you want this to be, are you sure you want it to be an odd number of pages? Why are you focusing on that? Oh, man.
Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, when I when I when I did my book years ago, it was really fun. But when they and I had a great editor, and they were really nice. But when it came time to promote the book, you know, I guess I kind of thought like, well, they're going to do this whole crazy. Oh, yeah. And I had a meeting with them, and they're like, so basically, they were like, so who do you know? You yeah. know, I'm like, wait, <laughs> but I still have to do all that. You know, yeah, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Well, that's the thing is that you you like at every stage of any entertainment business, mm-hmm. you think you're going to get caught up in this wave where the whole business is just going to sweep you yep. into success land, and what you realize is like you still have to do all that stuff. Yeah, no, the work never stops. Never. The work never stops, and it's funny because this time this time around, I kind of know better. Like I know not to expect anything, mm-hmm. and also I know that. Like, I have a bunch of connections, and I know that podcasts are what move books. Like, podcasts and YouTube channels, that's what moves books. Like, showing up in, you know, the LA Times or whatever, getting mentioned on a news program for 30 seconds, and they ask you one question that you would give, like, a five-word answer. Yeah. Nobody buys books. (laughs) Nobody buys. Yeah, it was a weird kind of magic that I realized, you know, almost immediately nine years ago when I started doing the podcast was that... You know, you could do a spot on a late night talk show, mm-hmm. but the podcast audience was just so much more. It's such an intimate. It, people have to go out of their way to yeah. engage with it, and they form a very personal bond with it, as we all do with the podcast. And so, it's just such a hyper targeted yeah. a- a- audience of people that you would probably hang out with because they, if they identify with you, yeah. you, you know. And when you're doing a talk show or a news show or whatever, it's just like it's a scatter shot. Like you might oh. get a small percentage of, and then those people that would actually buy the thing, you know. Yeah, it's. I hate doing television. I love podcasts because you can go deep. Mm-hmm. You can like deep dive into a topic, and like people will stick with you. Like I hate doing television because if I start to give, if I give an answer, and as soon as I get past like two sentences. You can just see everybody's eyes glaze over and they're like, uh, ratings dropping, ratings <laughs> dropping. Like, wrap it up, dude. Wrap it up. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can barely get like 20 words out. <laughs> I know. but you And I also wonder if you're painted into a corner a little bit just because of the title of the book. If someone oh, yeah. isn't familiar with the actual substance of the book, yeah, they might just be like, so to learn, not giving a fuck. What's this fucking guy? You know? Yeah. You're like, uh, well, it's... It's a little bit deeper than that, you know, and it's not. And they they probably just kind of look at it as a very goofy. I mean, like the book is amazing. I love that yeah. book, and a lot of people Thank love you. it. But if you don't read it, you would probably have a slightly different impression based on the title. Absolutely. I was actually I was talking to to, to a friend just earlier today about this. How it's crazy. I that book to date has sold. Seven and a half to eight million copies. Jesus Christ! Which, which that's like <laughs> that's really hard to do. That, that that like in the publishing world, those are like James Cameron numbers, you know, I like mean, especially like, in today's yeah, world. Yeah, and I've gotten no major mainstream press. I've like I've never been profiled in a major paper. I've never been on on like a talk show, like no big radio shows. They don't touch me, and I think it's because well, a the f word, and b they look at it and they're like, uh, it's a gimmick. You right. know, and it's um, it's just it's just strange. You know, like part of me, there's a little piece of me. It's like you know, fuck you guys. You know, <laughs> <laughs> pay attention to me. I'm here. But uh, there's an also there's a, a lot of me too. Just kind of, it's funny. Like it just it goes to show um, how the media scape is just shifting so much. Like like the fact that this can even happen. Um, Without, you know, being in the New York Times or whatever is like... It's very telling about how we 
the amount of power that we give mainstream media in terms of affecting uh, engagement or action Culture, or yeah. sales. Because, you know, you might look at the surface at, you know, oh, it looks like a lot of people are tweeting about this and all these news sites are referencing this one thing. Yeah. But if you were really to deep dive, it's like, is it is that everyone or is it just like a few thousand people? Yeah, you know? yeah. And of those few thousand people, they're really going to engage with that thing. And so it, I think it does challenge the idea of what we think is popular and also how we... And, and I think it's actually what you were just saying seems to thematically sort of fall a little bit into this book where you're like, oh, I mean, I've sold seven or eight million copies, which, by the way, is insane. It's ridiculous. And still there's a part <laughs> of you that's like, but I'm not, you know, like there's a, still a dissatisfaction. Right. It's like I was, I'm still like, the, feel like the little guy who's like <laughs> fighting to be let into the party, you know? And uh, it's, yeah, it's a strange world right now. It's a really strange world. So. And there might be people that you'd see on a talk show, like an author or something, and you go, well, this guy's probably famous. Probably hasn't sold seven or eight million copies of a, no. of a book. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's funny. I uh, I got I got invited to a, a very major conference recently, and it was like a last minute thing. They had somebody drop out, and so they contacted me, and uh, and I was like, okay, cool, great. How much are you paying? And they're like, oh, well, nothing. We thought you just want to come down, and I'm like. <laughs> excuse me <laughs> like i was insulted i was like are you really re you're really not what the fuck they're like oh yeah well you know the conference is already booked and we've already like got all the accounts and so sorry we don't have any money so they were paying other people but not you yeah and yeah. and and they were like well it's great exposure and i'm like <laughs> what, what planet have you been on? <laughs> well, the exposure card is one that uh, a lot of a lot of outlets, you know, play like, oh, you got all this exposure. Yeah, but I'm like, it says on the cover of my book, three million copies sold. Yeah. It's like I don't need exposure, dude. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah it's funny. It's just there's this disconnect. Um, I feel like there's this there's an internet world uh, that is largely driven by like podcasts, YouTubers. Um, in some conventional media, uh, and then there's this, then there's the old school mainstream world, and there's just like a, like a invisible wall between the two or something right now. It's it's really, it's really odd. Yeah, because there are like, you know, there are YouTubers with thirty million subscribers. Yeah, but if you asked any rant, and that which is you know uh, uh, about ten percent, little little less than ten percent of the population of this country. <laughs> but if yeah. you would knock door to door and said, "Hey, have you heard of this person or this person?" Unless they had kids, they'd probably be like, "No, yeah, I don't know who that is." So yeah. it's like the idea of awareness and how our culture has become nicheified, and how you can have an audience, but that's not. And then some people seem to have that kind of grander audience. But it doesn't necessarily – you see it in comedy too. Like there are really famous people, but it doesn't mean they're going to sell tickets if they go perform in a comedy venue. So yeah. it's like the – I don't know what the metric is or how to figure it out, but it's not what on the surface it would appear to be yeah. most of the time. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and that's definitely changed over the last like 10, 20 years. You know, it used to, it used to be. It was just like New York Times, Tonight Show – you know, boom, boom, boom. Like that's what you were shooting for. Yeah. And, and now it's, you know, I, I had an honest conversation with my publicist of like, do we even want a New York times spot? Like, mm -hmm. you know, like they've, they've kind of, they've shat on some people recently and, and it's like, do we want to take that risk? Like, do we need them? You know, it's like, I probably get a lot more out of sitting here talking to you than I would being highlighted in the New York times. So, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, 
what's so difficult when you work in a creative field is um, it doesn't have that sort of linear factory like, oh, we invented a thing and we made it. We manufacture it and it sold yeah. and then we sold more and then more. And then, you know, it's like we're constantly looking for some kind of metric to hold on to to know, like, are we doing well? The bottom yeah. line is, are we doing well? Yeah. And that's really tough to know, especially when you factor the ego part in where you're like, well, I have these ideas about what doing sure. well is. Yeah, yeah. And but they may or may not be true, you yeah. know, so it's like I, I understand it, but I honestly it's really hard to know. Like, I think we're doing, we sold books. <laughs> if we're not on that list, does that mean it's not yeah. successful? I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I really don't know. But especially um, coming from a blogging background too, because mm-hmm. blogs, I think have pretty much been de- decimated yes. by social media. Absolutely. So uh, do you think some of that has to do with like, Oh, it's a blog. It's one of them bloggers. I don't know. I guess he's got his <laughs> audience. Uh, like there's definitely some of that. There's definitely like, I've actually talked to well, so Ryan Holiday introduced yes, us. Yes, who's great. I love um, So he and I have actually talked in private before about how we feel like there is a like blogger, internet kid bias, you mm-hmm. know, in in a lot from a lot of these kind of established media places. And yeah, I, I definitely think there is. You know, it's like I didn't go to journalism school. I haven't been published in a magazine or newspaper before. Um, and for whatever reason, I think there's, you know. That counts against me in a right. lot of these cases. But again, seven and a half, eight million copies, <laughs> you like, know? I, yeah. I mean, it's when you're writing when you're writing this your your books, do you are you absorbing the stuff for your own life at the same time? Are yes. you as you're seeing it, you're going, Oh yeah, that's right, I gotta remember to do this. Yes. Um what I tell people is Writing for me, it's it's like my own very public form of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I write about things because I, I get this question all the time. They're like, like, oh, well, who the fuck are you to like tell me how to live my life or what makes me happy or whatever? And I'm like, I, look, I, I, I want to dispel the whole self-help guru right. thing, you know, out front. I don't write this stuff because I have the answers. I write this stuff because I have the same problems. And by writing about it, it helps me think through it and process it myself. Sure. And then I try to just present it in such a way that it can help other people as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's everything in this book is shit that I've been going through the last few years um, and struggling with and trying to figure out. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully other people get something out of it. Yeah, but that's but I think that's a, such a great place to come from because rather than being preached at, it's like, you know, our friends are – you know, with with exceptions, I'm sure some people have friends who are experts, but most of our friends are not experts. Yeah. But we, but when you have a problem, you call your friend and you relate to them, and they relate their experiences back to you. And so, I think from that point of view, it's there's a much kind of friendlier approach to your work because it doesn't feel like you're being preached at, yeah. and it does sort of feel like someone's just talking to you and saying like, yeah, shit sucks sometimes, and it's fucking <laughs> it's expected, and you know, and rather than someone who you know i think people can become a little defensive when they're being preached at because yeah. no one really likes to be told what to, and you're not telling people what to do no. you're just saying this is you know this is what i've observed this is what i feel you know like it or don't and i think that's different than reading a guru or an expert yeah. who seems to have everything figured out but probably doesn't really in real life. <laughs> and uh and i think that familiarity is sort of what why, why it communicates so well to people yeah i i think 
And like you said, when you preach at people, they they either get defensive or they put you on a pedestal. Sure. And like in many ways, that's even worse. And because it's like if people start putting me on a pedestal, then I have to like live up to expect. I have to like be stressed about shit that I don't care about. You know, like I don't want to be on anybody's pedestal. Like I have enough problem dealing with my own shit. I don't need people like, you know, hanging on my every word. So it's the, the way I conceptualize it is, is I'm not here to give answers. I'm here to ask good questions Mm -hmm. and help people ask good questions of themselves. Right. Cause I, you know, I, your book has been recommended to the last book has been recommended to me. I've recommended it to a lot of people and I always kind of – when I pitch it to people, I go, oh, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And they go, oh, that's really funny. And I go, yeah. And it doesn't – the book doesn't say you should never give a shit about anything. Yes. You know, like it's <laughs> more that things are going to happen in our lives yeah. that you can't control. It's, you know, that's sort of fundamentally stoic. There are things that you can't control. You, mm-hmm. If as long as you expect that pain, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of navigate the shit swamp yeah. that, that we go through sometimes. And they're like, oh, wow. You know, so yeah, it's like yeah. there, really is, there really is a depth to it that I think, um, you know, for anyone who's just looking for something, even if it's not specifically that, I just think it makes you, like you said, ask a lot of good questions. Yeah. And it, it was, it's funny, you know, back when I was doing press for Subtle Art, I could always tell like who had had hadn't read past chapter one because right. the first question out of their mouth would be like, so why shouldn't we give a fuck about anything? And I'm like, wow, you really did not get far into the book, did you? <laughs> Cause I think on page like 12, it says, you know, the opposite. So, um, yeah, it, it's been interesting. It's been a little bit that whole, um, what would you call it? Like that whole construction, the whole not give a fuck construction. Um, I think it's it's done wonders for bringing people in and getting them interested. Like it's just such a fun concept and title. Um, but yeah, it, it's caused a lot of misunderstanding. Like I just, I mean, even people who've read the whole book like email me and they're like, "Well, what? You know, I'm really angry at my dad. Like, how do I stop giving a fuck?" I'm like, "It's your dad. You should give a fuck. <laughs> it's exactly the person you should give a fuck about." <laughs> Yeah, but it, but I think there, there's also that idea of, you know, the more something scales up, the wider the audience yes. you reach, the numbers go up. So yep. it's like, you know, if 2% of the people hate you, that number is going to seem – it's going to be bigger if you have 10 times as many people. Yeah. And so it's just everything goes up. The good stuff goes up. The bad stuff goes up. It just all goes up. Yeah. So you're kind of just dealing with all of it. And, and it is that kind of – because, you know, I picked out a I, – I pulled out a chapter – really just a paragraph to read. Uh, and it's in a chapter called How to Start Your Own Religion. Uh, <laughs> and it's talking about – it's talking about how it's, like – It's satirical, by yes, the way. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, of course. It's not really how to – it's not literal. Don't, don't take that literally. Um, I mean it just it's just sort of talking about like pain mm-hmm. and no matter how much pain you like, there's always there's always a little bit of pain around the corner no matter what. Yeah, yeah. No matter how much pain you eradicate and anyone who tells you that they can fully eradicate your pain is probably lying to you. 
Uh, but I really like this paragraph. You said, but seriously, if someone really could solve all your problems, they'd go out of business by next Tuesday or get voted out of office next week. Leaders need their followers to be perpetually dissatisfied. It's good for the leadership business. If everything were perfect and great, there'd be no reason to follow anybody. No religion would ever make you feel blissful and peaceful all the time. No country will ever completely feel fair and safe. No political philosophy will solve everyone's problems all the time. True equality can never be achieved. Someone somewhere will always be screwed over. True freedom doesn't really exist because we must all sacrifice some autonomy for stability. No one, no matter how much you love them or they love you, will ever absolve that internal guilt you feel simply for existing. It's all fucked. Everything is fucked. It always has been and always will be. There are no solutions, only stopgap measures, only incremental improvements, only slightly better forms of fuckedness than others. And it's time we stop running from that and instead embrace it. <laughs> Which is such a... Woo! Which is such a great – I mean there's so much – there's a density in, in that paragraph. Let's just throw a party and just, just read that over and over. <laughs> but, it, but it is because um, I – you know, when I got sober in 2003, I, I sort of became addicted to self-help stuff. Yeah. And what I didn't realize until many years into my sobriety and self-help journey is that – we are obsessed, as you say in this chapter in particular, with success, like getting things, yeah. getting a car, getting a house or whatever, um, and still feeling dissatisfied. But there isn't a lot of stuff that teaches us how to be successful. They teach you how to get things. Yes. But how do you be successful? How do you maintain success? How do you not go crazy? How do you not fuck it up? That's, I think, where self-help should go. And it almost just feels like most of it's like, no, we got you that boat. What the fuck do you want? And it's <laughs> yeah, like, it's yeah, like, but that didn't fix the, didn't fill the hole. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. so now what happens? Yeah, I, I think it's, and I, I think what you just said on a very broad level is kind of what's happening to society at large right now. You know, it's it, early in the, in the book, um, I talk about like the paradox of progress of how materially everything is the best it's ever been in world history. We're living longer. We're safer. We're curing diseases where there are fewer wars. There's less violence. People are more educated. Like it just goes, the list is staggering. I mean, Steven Pinker's written like thousand page books just on how much better everything is, has become. Right. Um, Yet there's this like, psychological and emotional malaise in our cultures, you know, depression, anxiety, suicide, drug overdoses, like all these things are on the rise. And, and you just get on Twitter and you, it just seems like everybody's fucking freaking out all the time over everything. And That's so, the algorithm. yeah. And so I feel like we're almost as a culture, we're, we're, we're almost victims of our own success. Like it's, we've got the boat and we, we still don't, we don't feel fixed. Right. And so there's this just this like panicky like, oh, my God, what now? Like something's wrong. I know something's wrong. And like just reaching and grabbing for anything we can find. Um, and so that's the feeling that I, I wanted to investigate in this book, essentially, it is it, it's kind of it's kind of an extension of subtle like subtle art was very individual focused. It was like internal focus. You know, what are your values? How are you measuring success for yourself? How are you defining who you want to be? Uh, this is more like, okay, what about when you apply these principles kind of society-wide within mm-hmm. a whole population? And and how do these things affect culture? And how do these how does, say, a certain culture with a definition of success uh, 
help or hurt the individuals within that population. Yeah. Yeah, I often think to the um <clears throat> to the uh the prophetic prop the prophetic work known as the Matrix. Yes. Uh <laughs> which in which Agent Smith is telling uh Morpheus our original design for your world was a utopia. Yeah. And you couldn't handle it. It 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 it, it crashed. It yeah. failed because yeah. you thrive, you know, like you you thrive on chaos basically. Yeah. So what is that about our natures that you think thrives on this chaos? Do you think it's a a survival thing of having to constantly tear down and build back up, constantly tear down? Is it just an overactive, outdated survival mechanism that we are never satisfied? I think it's it's a basic evolutionary function. I mean, it's if you're a satisfied creature, isn't going to go build or innovate or create something new. Um, it's it's the slightly dissatisfied, slightly paranoid creature that's going to do the most work to advance its own interests. And so I think and, – and it's – you know, later on in the book, I lay out a lot of kind of the psychological evidence and, and research that shows that we are very much built to need a certain amount of stress and pain to, to optimize our well-being. You know, I, I call it – I think in one of the footnotes, I call it like a Goldilocks level of pain. Like if we have too, <laughs> if we have too much pain, we become traumatized and, and, and suffer all sorts of like debilitating stuff. If we have too little pain, we have like an existential crisis and we're like, oh my god, I have all these boats. What the fuck do I do with my they life? They get self-destructive. Yes. So there's like a Goldilocks level of pain of like just enough stress in your life that you feel like you can manage it and overcome it. Uh is what infuses us with a, a sense of meaning and purpose. And I think in many ways, a lot of like what our, you know, the technology and, and uh, a lot of that, a lot of the innovations that are, uh, I guess, culture has been driving towards is, is taking us too far on the uh, one side of the scale of like not enough, like not a healthy amount of stress and pain in our lives. Right. You know, things are too easy, too comfortable, um, and so we need to find like spilled milk to get upset about. Right, right, right. So we're cre- we're basically building the fire to then go fire. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> stomp it out, get burned, and then go. There's another one. You know, like never just being able to go. Ah, yeah. I mean, it's a hard. It's a that's a that's a fucking skill set to learn how to not. You know, in in the absence of fires, build fires. To, yeah, to put out absolutely, and I, and I think. I think what, you know, what we, the, the real solution, I, I don't think there's ever a, a solution where, like, where we're just not going to see fires. I think what we have to do is understand our, you know, our minds and find useful fires to, to create. You know, it's like if, if, you're, if, if your psychological makeup is such that you are going to see problems no matter how good and comfortable reality is. Check. Yeah. Then you might as well choose good problems to find you know you might as well go out searching for good problems to solve so um you know and that requires like kind of an active engaging with the world and and deciding like choosing what sucks choosing your struggle is how i put it in subtle art but it's um it's yeah i don't know choosing your values though in a way yeah well because whatever you only value what you struggle for right you know so it's like if, uh, you know, Santa Claus just drops a boat out of the sky, I mean, you'll be happy for a minute, but ultimately it, it's going to feel a little bit meaningless. Like, 
Well, that's an extreme example, but like no, no. But you're basically talking about lottery winners. Yeah, well, yeah. It feel it feels meaningless. Or if you imagine just like a spoiled brat, you know, like a a, a kid, who, a trust fund kid who's just given everything his entire life. He has no appreciation for anything. He has no appreciation for like where it came from or the work that went in. And there's no meaning or value to it. Um, like you said, he, he becomes self destructive. Everything is just chasing highs. Um, it's only when you like bust your ass for years and years and years and try to build something that you are able to act like the rewards actually become meaningful. Right. You know, like a, like the boat actually means something to you because it's like, shit, I woke up at 5am for 20 years to get that thing. It's a symbol of, yeah, it is a symbol of work. It's a symbol of the struggle. It's a symbol of overcoming the struggle. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that is important, but still, you know, if just having things were the key to happiness, then, <laughs> then a lot of people who have money would be thrilled all the time <laughs> and not, and not, you know, but a lot of them, I feel like, maybe I'm making a broad generalization, but a lot of them are maybe kind of empty and maybe yeah. kind of don't, you know, like need to find a cause or get so insane about a cause because they just need to feel you know, like, I guess we just all need to feel worth. It is, there's so many conflicting things in our soul. Yeah. It's like, we need to feel significance. We need to feel work, but we also need to shake shit up and we need to feel pain. Yeah. And, and, and what wins? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, well, and I think this is an issue. It's crazy. One, actually, one of the craziest things I came across in my research for this book was there was a study that looked at suicide rates, even down to like the zip code, down to the individual neighborhoods. And they found that in major U.S. cities, zip codes with higher – like the suicide rate was correlated with the average net worth of people in each zip code. So it's oh, like wow. it's – you can almost predict what the suicide rate is going to be in each city based on how rich the neighborhood is. Right. And it, I feel, because I'm sure you probably subscribe to Daily Stoic, uh, Ryan's uh, email website. Yeah. But it's, he has, I've seen him talk about that sometimes, but, you know, with the differences between, like, you know, Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, one of them was a, like, a ruler and had yeah. a lot of stuff. Another one was just a rich guy. Another one didn't want to have anything. And the answer is, they were all right. Yeah. It's just be, because they were... You know, like they were better, in theory, better at not placing value on external things yes. over their own sort of internal self-worth. And we are nonstop chasing meaning in the external world to try to make ourselves feel better. And time and time again, it's like, how many times does that shit not have to work before we fucking <laughs> listen to it? And I don't know. I don't know what the yeah, answer is to yeah. that. I mean, I don't think we'll ever. It's like I said, you know, that the part you read, like, we're never going to stop looking for it. And so <laughs> you might as, might as well find places to look for it that are health, like healthier, socially constructive and, um, you know, don't hurt other people. Um, but I mean, the the luxury thing, I, th I think our issue, to, you know, the reason you see that suicide discrepancy is I think, you know, the more luxury you live in, the, the more difficult it is to find meaningful struggles. You know, everything becomes to, you know, some, some dudes bringing you your burritos every day on a silver tray. Like you, you, you don't have to actually like strive for anything if you don't want to. And, um, and you lose something with that. There, there is something. 
um, I'm trying to remember. I, it's uh, the Phil Knight book. Have you read that, Shoe Dog? No. no. It's great. Um, What's it called? Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog, okay. It's about the founder of Nike. Okay. And it's funny. So to back up a little bit, after I wrote Subtle Art, you know, 7 million copies, blah, 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 I actually, it like mind fucked me really hard. Like a lot of what we're talking about, the reason I decided to write about it is because the the astronomical success of Subtle Art like really mind fucked me. Like it was, I woke up every day and I was like, well... I don't have to do anything. Like, <laughs> it's like I, I would literally spend an entire week. I see you got the, the Zelda shield here. Yes. I would spend an entire week playing Zelda Breath of the Wild yep. and uh, sit in my boxers and like not shower and drive my wife crazy. And I would, uh, you know, go check the analytics and it's like, wow, sales just went up 20% again. You know, it's like there's nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do. And it was amazing, but it, it, there was like this profound like lethargy. Like I, I didn't know the, – the way I eventually described it is like I had this whole set of dreams of like I wanted to be a successful author and I wanted to sell a ton of books and I wanted to you know, speak around the world. And it's like subtle art just knocked out all those dreams in like three months. Mm-hmm. And so then I woke up one day and I have no dreams anymore. I have nothing to hope for. I have nothing to look forward to. Like I, I hit all of the targets – at 33 or whatever. And the worst part about this is if you ever, if you go complain to anybody, they're like, they think you're a total go asshole. Go fuck yourself. How fucking dare you? Yeah, Do you know how many people know you privileged piece of shit? Yeah. And you're like, no, but there really is an existential cry. Like, people really do get fucked up. And I yeah. think it's because we don't, we don't talk about, because I think people are afraid to talk about those things. Yes. Because they'll just go, I'll just look like an asshole if I talk about it. But it's real. And yeah. that's why they're, the correlation that you were talking about, like, there's data that proves that that shit is real. Yeah. And so I was sitting there. I'm like, wow, this is like the most depressed I've been since I was a teenager. And I'm like, how how is that possible? And I started looking at it. And it's like, it's essentially the same thing. I, you know, when I was broke and alone and miserable at, 18 or whatever, it was because I had not, I felt like I had nothing to hope for. I had nothing to look forward to. I, I There was no clear vision of like what was next in my life. And I realized that was the exact same thing in this case. So anyway, back to the Phil Knight thing. I read, I read his book when it came out and I was blown away because it, it's basically the story of, it's like the first, I think, 10, 15 years of Nike. And, um, and it's just clusterfuck after clusterfuck. Like it's just barely getting by by the seat of his pants. Like close call after close call. Him being broke for like I think he didn't pay himself for the first eight years or something. You know, there's just disaster after disaster. And uh, and then it ends when they go public and like the last page of the book. He's like, yeah. And then I woke up that the next day and I was worth like 180 million dollars. <laughs> oh you know. And and then in the conclusion, he it's it's his present day Phil. Um, and he's like, yeah, today I'm worth like $10 billion. And he, and he said like, the only regret I have is that I can't go back and live this again. Like he said, if I could go back, you know, he described like all the athletes he gets to hang out with and, you know, all the, all the big, the big house and all the cars and all this shit that, that he has today. And he's like, yeah, but if you told me I could go back and live those first 10 years again, he's like, I would do it in a heartbeat. Like he's like, it was best years of my life, hands down. Um, and I thought that was like so powerful, like, and I, I can relate to that a little bit. Like I'm about my own career. I'm nostalgic for the days where like I was sleeping on a buddy's couch and 
you know, putting up blog posts every other day and like excited that a hundred people read it, you know, mm-hmm. like, it, and, and then the next week, like 150 people read it. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm, I'm fucking making it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's just something like really, uh, invigorating about that kind of like fighting tooth and nail for something that means so much to you. But are you romanticizing it a little bit? Because I feel like we do that with the past because we're such efficient editors in our minds because you, you, you very much could be, you may have, you may have experienced a few moments of excitement and like 23 hours of, Oh my God, just agony of not of hopelessness or or whatever. And your brain's editing all that out because it, it, you can't possibly store, you know, you can't yeah. consciously keep all that information. Well, it is true. And we are very, like, our memories are very biased towards, like, we, we paint rosy pictures over, like, sludge and shit. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, what happened with this book, I basically signed on to do this book. I started writing this book, and then, like, right when I started writing it, all these other projects fell on me. And so I became super busy again and was like working, you know, stressed all the time. And and it felt good. Like I actually enjoyed working weekends more than I did when I was like sitting in my underwear for weeks on end. And so that was like that. That's kind of where the realization of like I need a certain amount of stress and anxiety to like my optimal mental health is having a certain amount of stress and anxiety. Because it gives you purpose. Like, yeah. ultimately, we all want purpose. Yes. And I think a, a, a great example of the, the, the romanticizing of the past that you were talking about, it sounds more nostalgic. Like, yes. How, I think everyone has an example of a song from 20 years ago that they fucking hated every time <laughs> it came on the radio like there are songs now that I'll hear like on the lithium station on Sirius XM, yeah. songs that I detested strongly in the yeah. '90s, and I'll hear them and I'll go, "Ah oh, man," you know, because it just, <laughs> it just, it just, oh, this isn't so bad. Oh, I think yeah. I kind of get it now, you know. Yeah. It just, you know, it just it transports you to a different. It, like that's just nostalgia. I feel like that's nostalgia that it's not necessarily a a a real qualitative statement. Well, let me push back on that. Okay, please. Um, and I'll throw this at you. Sure. Because sure. I, I mean, I could give an example from my own life. But, okay, think about a time that you're super nostalgic for and think about a time that you're not nostalgic for. Like you wouldn't yeah. go back. Which period was uh, involved more challenges? Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, first, it's like for me, like high school, I would never go back to high school. But like I basically just sat around and smoked pot and played guitar all day every day and and like talk to girls and failed, you know, like that, but it's, it was an easy stress-free life. Uh, oh, see, I would say the reverse. I would, I would say the reverse. I would say the hard stuff that, you know, I, I went, cause I didn't really like grade school. Sure. I think it provided a lot of growth. I mean, like I was an, an amazing student. I just was not very popular. Like I've just sure. got a lot of shit, you know, and got bullied a lot. And so I sort of, when I look at that, I think, well, that helped form who I am. So the hardest things, the stressful things really, that's where we experience the most growth. Yes. But I fucking would not want to do it again. Interesting. You know, like, because it just, to me, but but I'm also the kind of person where, um, like, if I, if I leave the house and I forgot something, 
I probably would be more prone to either let it just stay at home or take a different way home because I don't want to go the same. I don't want to backtrack. I hate backtracking. So maybe that's just part of my personality. That's that's an odd example. (laughs) It's just part of my personality. Like having to go through stuff again. It's like, yeah. I don't ever have that. Boy, I sure wish I were 15 again. No, fuck no. I don't want to have to live through all that shit again. Like I'm ha- I, like I'm happy, you know. I'm yeah, happy. yeah. I I feel the same way. But I think it's use like it's a it's interest it's fun ex- thought experiments. Yeah. You know, you know to kind of like pinpoint where them in and it's funny now that you say that. It's like, yeah, actually my high school life was extremely stressful and anxiety ridden, but it was maybe this is the difference. It was uh it was forces outside of my own control. Sure. Whereas like the the era that I'm nostalgic for, like when I was starting my business, it the stress was based on my choices and based on like what I was choosing to do with myself. Right. So. Yeah. And the and again, you had that excitement. You had that that's where the passionate, you know, like, ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out a thing. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you've already been through all the stuff. You know, when I was in college, um my friend and I, he he had a neighbor who was this super like stoner dude who would occasionally just say some really profound stuff. And it kind of reminds me of what you were saying about getting the boat. But we were talking about dating and, you know, and uh, and he's like, yeah. Uh, and he, talk, he, he he mentioned some girl that it's like, oh, man, she's the top of the top. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 it, and we were like, oh, you should ask her out. And he was like, no, 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 no. This blew me away that this guy in college didn't need to say anything. He goes, no, 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 man. You don't ever want number one. You want number two so you can still hope for number one. And I was like, oh, my God. What a crazy and, – and the older I get, the more I'm like, maybe he's right. You know, like maybe the thing that we think we want, the thing that we think is going to change our lives, it's always good to like have that as a, as a little Dude. bit of a dream because then if you get the, everything, then it's like – Oh, now what? Dude, I should reference him in my book. Like, <laughs> seriously, that's like half of my book. Is, is, I think is, his name was Jimmy. He was just like just the coolest, this stony Asian dude with like hair down to his back. Just the nicest, <laughs> sweetest guy. And it would just, you know, he was almost cinematic the way that that's in the middle awesome. of a conversation he would just say something. You'd be like, holy shit. How does, it, how does someone in college know that, you know? <laughs> but I think that – I think maybe that is that is part of it. And so – you know, what would you say some of the steps would be for someone who's trying to kind of sort through all this mess and all this chaos and yeah. this discord and this struggle? Like, you know, is it a, well, write the stuff down, figure out what you don't need, figure out what your values are, figure out this, figure out that. Is that, is that, is that just too much, is that just too much work? No, no. I mean, we all have to do that. Like, yeah. I, I think, I think it's, it's a fundamental uh, it's the fundamental work that anybody, you know, I, I have a chapter where I talk about like maturity and I think a huge component of maturity is like the difference between a, being a mature person and an immature person is an immature person just kind of goes along with the values that are given to them. Whereas to reach kind of become a mature adult, you have to like consciously choose, okay, this is the thing I'm going to sacrifice for. Mm-hmm. This is the thing I'm going to care about in my life. And, um, and I think there are a lot I think it's just getting more and more difficult to do that. You know, right. I, I think, uh, I I think, you know, we we live in an, an age of abundance of information, an abundance of entertainment, media, and I think when you have far when the in, the amount of information out there like vastly outstrips any individual's ability to to, to consume it or process it, the most important question essentially becomes 
how are you going to filter? Like, what are the values and the the principles that are you you are you going to use to decide like what gets in and what what you keep out? Um, and I think most of us are on auto- autopilot with that. You know, we just like you said, Twitter's algorithm it mm-hmm. just spits outrage at you. Yeah, and and, and we just let ourselves get sucked along. So. Um, I mean, we can pick on social media, but I think that's happening in a lot of different um, domains. Absolutely. And I also think from an evolutionary standpoint, we are social animals. Yes. We we need a community to thrive. And all the self-help stuff we read is really only about our own individual selves and yep. not about the group. And so I think there's an emptiness because on a fundamental survival level – we need to connect with other people and contribute to, c- contribute to the group because anyone, you know, a- a- anyone who's having an existential crisis or if you know or if they feel shitty about themselves, a lot of those people, if they go like volunteer their time or go help someone else, they instantly feel better because they're not focusing on themselves yeah. and they're focusing on contributing and they're focusing on other people and it takes them out of their own heads, which is I I think kind of. How we survived yeah, is, by, yeah. is by doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I always find it uh, really kind of strange that, I mean, essentially what gives our, gives us a sense of meaning in our lives is sacrifice. It's, it's like giving up either something to help ourselves or giving up something to help other people. Like those, that's essentially like the only thing that generates that sense of purpose that you were talking about. And, most self-help material is revolves around trying to get to this mythical place where you never have to sacrifice anything for right. anybody. Right. It's like you get you get to have everything when you want it, how you want it. You're the boss. You make all the decisions. It's like no, 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 no. It's not only does the world not work that way, but it just leads you to like a very lonely, narcissistic place um, where you feel dis- disconnect, like more disconnected from other people. Right. Yeah. Because in the same way that we might romanticize the past, we might also romanticize a vision of the future where you're sort of like that, um, that old infomercial with Tom Vu, was that his name? Like the, the guy that would be on the, standing on the boat, like you can make a billion dollars. It's like, <laughs> oh, girls behind him. And, you know, people are like, yeah, that's what I want. But you don't really like, that's such a romantic idea because you don't think people never understand <laughs> That wait, is this Tom Tom Vu or Dan Bilzerian? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I just I think this idea this idea that you know, yes, you can have more things, but more things require more work and responsibility. Yes, not only to keep and maintain, but also again because of the of, of your own kind of personal emotional baggage as well. Yeah, and. You know, and then you have this added challenge of like, oh, I got this thing, and now I'm not full, so I'm empty. So now I feel even worse because this thing did not fix me, and now yeah. I have to do. Now I have this whole other set of. Now I'm just spiraling and self-destructive. You know, <laughs> but the key, I, mean, I wouldn't say the key is like sell all your shit and move yeah. to the woods. But you know how how to how to start using internal reference points for fulfillment in and of yourself and who you are rather than trying to fill that bucket. And that's, I think that's the real challenge. And that's what I think people should be talking about and instructing people on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the starting point is exactly what you said. It's, it's, it's 
giving. It's a, it's doing something for other people. Um, you know, the conclusion I ultimately came to is that essentially the only meaningful thing you can do is help other people. And by people, I include myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you you treat – you always make sure that your actions are treating other people as the top, the most valued thing in your actions. Um, and so it, it, it results in that sense of sacrifice. It results in that sense of meaning. It cr- that's what creates intimacy in relationships. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, they assume that a good relationship is just like having fun and saying cool shit to each other. And it's like, no, what, what, like what a good relationship actually is like what intimacy actually is, is it is a sense of like emotional sacrifice. It's like showing, like being vulnerable, showing your flaws, telling somebody like, Hey man, I I really fucked up. Like you deserve better than that. You know, I won't do it again. Like that's what creates intimacy. Mm -hmm. Not like, Oh dude, you love that movie too. Yeah. I love that movie. Oh, high five. Yeah. Like, and, and it's, um, and so I think it's it's just we've got to be realistic about uh, like this is this is just the way our brains work like this is the way our brains work and this is the way our mind works and if we don't uh, own that and 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 become aware of that uh, then all of this crazy technological shit that's happening like it's going to run us and not the other way around right because maintenance is not a sexy concept. No. Maintenance, but everything requires maintenance. You know, like you, any success that you achieve, any failures that you have, any job that you have, any relationship that you have, yep. it is nonstop maintenance. But we do have this kind of, you know, movie idea. That it's like, oh, once you, once, you know, like, ah, two people find each other and they kiss and they ride off into the sunset and then everything's great, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. forever. <laughs> and then, you know, but relationships take work and they take yeah. care. And it, I mean, it's a, you know, you, you don't, you, you wouldn't just fucking plant lettuce in your backyard and be like, well, I didn't, did, did nothing happen. <laughs> what did it grow, Did man? you water it? <laughs> oh, what? Oh, I started to do everything? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you do. Yeah. yeah, you fucking do. And people don't want to hear about that, that. It's funny when I see, like, I always tell people that, um, uh, you know, I my background, my original, like the first thing I started blogging about was actually dating relationship advice because I was a disaster at it uh, myself. And so it was funny. I spent like a number of years just reading all these books about dating, relationships, emotions, attraction, all these things. And uh, it ruined rom-coms for me. Like I've never enjoyed a rom-com ever since. And it was funny because when I was dating my wife, you know, she would take me to watch like a romantic, like some romantic comedy. And I, and I just like. We'd be sitting there in the theater. I'd be like, oh, God, <laughs> dude has no respect for her boundaries. And she'd be like, shut up. It's romantic. And I'm like, that, no, that's not romantic. That is setting a precedent of bad expectations. And she's going to, you know, <laughs> my wife was just like, oh, my God, I can't take you anywhere. Well, yeah, but wasn't like, wasn't, wasn't the idea that you ultimately wrote about was like, connecting with people via honesty yeah as opposed to that sort of pickup artist idea of like games and deception and yeah tricking tricking people you know <laughs> slight emotional sleight of hand you know it's like oh what if you just uh i mean you know my wife and i our first date uh was our dads both coincidentally died within a month of each other oh, and wow. mine died of a heart attack and her di- hers died of cancer and our first date 
was just talking about our dead dads and the experiences that we both had. And it was, and Damn. it wasn't sad or morbid. It was just like, that's what we talked about. And it was like the most honest first date I ever had. Yeah. And now we're married, you know? Yeah. No, that's intimate as hell. Yeah. <laughs> that is really like, yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, and it's funny because people avoid those conversations because it's, it's, it's uncomfortable and it hurt, you know, it hurts to talk about those things, but it's, it's because it hurts. That's what, you know, brings you together in a, in a more meaningful way. And this is, the, you know, and that's kind of what I love about not only Subtle Art, but what you're writing about here in, uh, in this book, because it, uh, I feel like we are conditioning ourselves so much to avoid any discomfort always. Yeah. Whether it's through, you know, shopping or drugs or sex or this or that. It's just all distractions from discomfort. And yeah. to, to the extent that people will, like, freak the fuck out if anything even feels slightly uncomfortable, yet discomfort is not only normal, but it's also where the growth happens. Yes. And so we are, in a sense, cheating ourselves of our full potential by not allowing ourselves to feel discomfort because it we are stifling our emotional growth. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. <laughs> Not yeah. that I'm saying you should rush out into traffic and try to get hit by a car, but I mean, <laughs> like life will deal you things. But because there, there's so there's two, there are things that are just um, ob- objectively shitty, and then there's a lot of things that are subjectively shitty. Yes. And I think the subjectively shitty thing is where the idea of stoicism comes in. Yes. You can choose how you perceive this situation. You can use turn an obstacle into you know an, an, an asset. So uh, you know how do you navigate those those kind of two fundamental principles of mm-hmm. uh, of life? Well, I think it's I, I, I mentioned there's there's a famous allegory. Um, is allegory the right word? I don't even know what the fuck the right word is, but it, it's uh, something the Buddha said. It yeah. was like a parable, okay. I guess you'd say. He said that. Um, he said that anytime, every time we're hurt, we get struck by two arrows. Uh, the first hurt is the, the the actual physical arrow, like piercing your skin. The second arrow is the meaning that you ascribe to the arrow piercing your skin. And basically, the Buddha said that once you uh, master your mind and like still your mind, you're you're able to not not ever feel pain from the second arrow. Mm-hmm. Like you can still get struck, but the arrow doesn't hurt you because you don't put you don't attach any significance to it. Right. Um, and so I think. I mean, obviously, that's hardcore as fuck, and, like, none of us are going to get to that point. <laughs> but it's a nice thing to strive for. Sure. You know? And so I, I just try to be super aware. You know, I I, ta- I spent a lot of time in this book talking about, like, narratives, like the narratives that we write around our experiences and the narratives that we write around our pain. And, like, are, are we uh, – if something happens to us when we're young, like th- – th- whether if the narrative we write is that it's our fault or that we're a bad person or if the narrative we write is that, you know, the world's a shitty place, like that's going to have a lot of uh, effects, you know, throughout going through our life into mm-hmm. the future. Um, so for me, it's just it's just becoming trying to be super aware of those narratives that we create around our experiences, understanding that generally as a rule the first narratives that come to mind are always extremely biased and self-serving um 
and basically trying to get as adept as possible at rewriting those narratives or searching for maybe a narrative that is a little bit more objectively true or more useful for myself and for other people. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of abstract, but just to, you know, like give an example. Um, like, let's say my wife uh, does something that really pisses me off. You know, one narrative that is a pretty common narrative is like, oh wow, my my wife's total bitch. You know, like oh she's so, so disrespectful, doesn't care about my feelings, and that is often actually like the first narrative that pops in your head. But you need to be like aware enough and savvy enough to be like to just recognize that that's just a narrative. Like there's nothing, there's no, like you said, it's a subjective truth. There's no like final say that that is actually a truth. And so you can try on other narratives. You can start saying like, well, you know, maybe she didn't realize how this was going to affect me. Maybe she and I have different values. Maybe I'm being an oversensitive asshole. Um, and you don't have to like own any of them but you can try them on it's like going into a store and trying on a bunch of clothes you're like hmm that fits pretty well like <laughs> this makes me look good and you try another one and you're like well yeah well, that, that's a little scratchy but like it, it at least just gives you i guess a mental flexibility uh, a psychological flexibility um that that allows i guess in the same way you know and, and that having flexible muscles prevents serious injury you know i think having psychological flexibility kind of prevents serious emotional injury it's it's you're able to like more easily see that there are alternatives that could be true that's such a great that's such a great analogy too because you don't when you go clothes shopping you don't just walk in grab the first thing yeah. regardless of how it fits or whatever just go okay and pay for it and walk out you yeah. go oh this thing sucks did you try anything else no yeah oh well that probably <laughs> wasn't the right thing yeah because I like I've had that too I today's just been one of those weird days uh, where I was having breakfast and I was multitasking by trying to pay the check get my to go uh, coffee drink and type an email and I. Just knocked the full cup of coffee. <laughs> I could not have coded the computer anymore oh my God. With, with, with coffee. And uh, see, everything is fucked. Everything's <laughs> fucked. Yeah, everything's fucked. Everything is. And fucked. I took it pretty well. I was nice. like, "All right, you know what? It's a thing. I can replace this thing. Shit you know, happens. like I, you know, it's like." And then I get home and I realize, like, I haven't backed up the computer in a couple months, so, you know, I'm going to lose all these texts and, you know, most (laughs) things are in the cloud, but fucking still. And then my wife is like – and my wife hates technology. Yeah. And so she said, uh, oh, you know, you could just take it to a place and just have them – you know, like pull it off. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to hand my computer with all of like my financial files and everything just to a random person. And she's like, oh, I was just trying to. And I go, but you hate tech. Why are you telling me? And then I realized halfway through like, oh, this is my defensive ego. I'm mad at yeah. myself for yeah. being stupid. Yeah, and like- I instantly was like, I'm being an idiot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I appreciate you trying to help. But if I didn't have the if I didn't have the ability to do that, then I might have just gone with my first ego reaction. Yeah. And that wouldn't have helped anybody. It wouldn't have helped me. It wouldn't have helped her. And, uh, you know, and her suggestion was good, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. And and to bring it back to the two arrow thing, it's, you know, initially there's no like there's no separation between the two arrows. It's like you get hit by the physical one and then the psychological one is just immediately there. And, And I guess what the Buddha said is that the more you meditate, the more you practice, the more you meditate, 
Um, but I imagine it's not just, in my opinion, it's not just meditation. It could be any therapeutic mm-hmm. practice. Um, the more, the, the larger the separation between those two arrows. So it's like you had a reaction and then within, a, it sounds like within like five, 10 seconds, you caught it. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh shit, I'm making this up. Like, yep. this is my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like, I just invented this thing. And it, it's, in, in my experience, it's like the, it's like anything. The more you do it, the shorter that window gets. You know, so it's like, the next time it'll be three seconds. The next time you won't even say a fucking thing to her. You know, you'll just be like, uh, ah, yes. Yeah. I was about to say something really, I was about to be a big dick. So I'm glad I wasn't. Yeah. but I think, but I think then you throw on top of all that stuff that, and this is where it gets really mind fucky is that, um, I think a lot of people think they deserve chaos or mm-hmm. think they deserve to be shit on. Yeah. And so, I think a lot of people don't realize that they might create situations so that they can feel bad about themselves because that's their default setting. That's yes. where they feel the most comfortable. They are in a toxic relationship with themselves. Yes. But it's comfortable. And for whatever reason, it's what they think or it's what they deserve. And so – but they may not even realize that they are the architects of that. Yes. That's a whole other level oh, of horseshit. Man. Yeah. It's uh, – yeah, that's, that's like horseshit squared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is because it it sort of it begins to like fold back on itself, but but that's why I think it's so important for people to you know, talk whether it be a therapist or a support yeah. structure or a friend or a trusted or a family member or something and write down things that they feel, write down things that they want and then really try to understand why they want those things. You might think you want something, but when you start kind of going through the whys and the what it would takes and what it would take to maintain, you might go, I actually don't want that thing at all. And yeah. what a relief it is to let that go. Yeah. And it's it's once you start getting that space between, you know, the feeling of hurt and then your response to it, the more you start to recognize, you're like, wow, I am like, totally shooting myself in the foot <laughs> repeatedly you know it's it's um i remember you know when i was when i was a teenager like my 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 first serious girlfriend like we we were both just totally fucked up in the head and as as most teenagers sure. are and um and we would basically like i didn't realize this at the time i thought this was just how relationships went but like she and i would both basically like gaslight each other like we would find we didn't want to be the ones that start like started the fight, but we wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. So we would like find sneaky ways to like make the other person like really passive aggressive ways to like make the other person mad and then be like, Oh, well, why are you mad? Well, it's, it's not my fault. You like can't fucking pick up your phone and all this shit. Like right. I'm just chilling, you know, whereas like I basically kind of like set up the whole scenario. So I, I could be <laughs> mad at her without it being my fault. And it's, it took me like, well, it took me – I had to go to therapy before I realized that it's like that was actually what I was doing. And it was because I was afraid to, to say that I was upset. It was afra- I was afraid to say that like I was scared that I, you know, I couldn't handle the relationship or that she was going to leave me or something like that. And so I would find, you know, instead of confronting that, I would just subconsciously find these little things that would – would start fires in the relationship and she would do the same thing to me, you know, and, and it just, um, but when you're, when you exist at that level, when you think that that's what love is and, and that that's what you deserve, like, that's just how you be with somebody. Um, it doesn't even strike you that it's like, 
totally fucked up. Sure, but there and and also underneath that there are also issues of control, like passive aggressive yes. control of the relationship and keeping someone off balance and and the idea of drama being pat for equaling passion in some yeah, way, yeah. you know, and it's like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, none of that's none of that's you don't need any of that, you yeah. know, like you could just you think things can just be okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. It's it's just everything is fucked. And I almost wonder, but is there a parenthetical that's like, but things can be okay, you know, if you're okay with that? Yeah, well, I think I even say in the book, like, it's, it, it's, I don't know if it was around that section. That, I think it was the next chapter. But I said it's like, everything's fucked. Everything's always going to be fucked. It's just a matter of the fuckingness getting better. Like, finding yeah. better fuckingness. Um, and it's similar. It's, it's kind of like a, an expansion of what I said in Subtle Art, which is that, you know, a good life is not a life without problems. It's it's a life with good problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so improve, self-improvement is essentially finding better problems for yourself. And I think just as, in general as a culture or the way we interact with society in, in, in general, uh, it's about finding better issues to pay attention to. What's a good example of bad issue finding a better issue or bad problem finding a better problem i so this is an area where i actually think you can get scientific about it and and it this is what drives me crazy about news media today because news media is very much driven by like clickbait and outrage and like drama um and it's not like i think if you sat down and like wrote out the top 50 issues affecting people in this country or in the world today um, and then you could like mathematically figure out how many people it, it affects. Um, you know, the top things would probably be like climate change, healthcare, uh, welfare reform, tax reform, like boring shit that like <laughs> er- nobody wants to hear about, nobody wants to talk about. Um, at the bottom of that list would probably be what you see on the news all day, every day. You know, it's like. We're recording this after Jesse Smollett just got acquit. Or all the charges dropped, and it's like all that was on the news yesterday. It was every like I went to the gym. It was on all the news channels the entire time I was on the gym. I went home. It was all over the Twitter feed, all over Facebook. I'm like, who fucking cares? <laughs> like it really like this affects like five people in the world, you know? Um, it, but it's just good drama. So. Uh, I think it's what I try to do is is I try to look at um, issues in, in terms of like a more objective importance. Um, what are the things that I should be caring about or or, or uh, mo- acting towards? Um, you know, stuff like drug legalization or prison reform. You know, it's like things that you can affect um, and you can put some energy into and, and, and that actually have like real results. And because you put energy towards it, it generates a sense of meaning and important importance in your life. Whereas, like, you know, just sitting sitting on Facebook and writing screeds about Jesse Smollett, like, it doesn't. It's just empty. It's like empty calories. It's just it's going to be gone in a week, and you're going to forget it happened, and and nobody's going to care. Like, it's not going to matter anymore. Um, and that go, that's true if you're on the right or the left. You know, it's it's. Um, one thing I was very careful about in this book is is I wanted to write a book about our political culture right now, about the polarization, about like the media narratives, but without picking a side. Um, I wanted I wanted to write a book that both people on the right and the left could read and be like, oh shit, 
yeah, that happens all the time. Like I see that on the other side. I see this stuff on my side. I see this. I feel this way all the time. Like I do this. Um, cause I really do think it's a, it's a society wide thing. It's not a, it's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not even an American thing. Like this, this shit's happening in like 20 different countries right now. Um, and so I think it's, we like really need, need to take a hard look at like, what are the forces that are causing, uh, these trends. Well, and I, and I also wonder if how much of the stuff we see in news media is represent is, is, is representation of what the actual world is like, and not just a very specific snippet of it. Yeah. That is again, of course, designed to increase engagement, designed to get ratings, designed to get clicks, designed to inflame your emotions and insecurities so that you engage, you know, like rather than, living your life off the internet, which the internet doesn't want because then it can't make money off of you. you So, you know, it's it's just that idea of, uh, and I've referenced the book many times, the 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. Um, Is that the Jerry Lanier? Lanier, Yeah, yeah, Jerry Lanier book. And, uh, And it's like, oh, do you, I mean, do you want all of your emotions basically, um, commodified for banner ads you know it's like when you think about it that way you're like oh yeah yeah i'm getting mad so that a company can you know like put an amazon link on there or something and and get a click through or or, or i i don't think i referenced him but his book uh who owns the future was like pretty mind-opening for me when i was doing research for this i read that one i gotta read that one yeah it's really good it's um it's a little bit more about kind of like the economics of I mean, he basically he fundamentally makes the argument that the economics behind a lot of uh, not just social media, but like a lot of the tech apps and stuff that we use today is just fundamentally, by definition, unethical. (laughs) Uh, And he makes it a really convincing way. Like, it's pretty surprising. Uh, You know, it's one of those things that it's hiding in plain sight. You know, it's like and as soon as he shows it, you're like, oh, shit, he's right. Like, it's just they're monetizing people's attention and um and that is by definition manipulation like it is like if somebody like if you and I were like sitting in a restaurant right now and some guy like you know came up and flashed a bunch of stuff to you and convinced you to give him a dollar um through a bunch of like you know uh misdirection and whatnot we'd be like oh yeah that dude just cheated you out of a dollar mm-hmm. but when it happens online we're like yeah well it's just business <laughs> <laughs> yeah by the way when people say it's just business yeah <laughs> there's never a positive thing that's happening no. <laughs> on the other side of it it's usually the fucking worst there you're just getting fucked over in some really terrible just business. oh man what a bummer Why? Yeah, come yeah. on uh what was the thing you said for first you were talking about who owns the future that it's all, um, it's all a sleight of hand. It's what did you say initially? Uh, he talks about the eco- how the eco- economics behind a lot of like what Silicon Valley is producing is like by definition unethical. He his argument is that it fundamentally re- uh, removes people's uh, autonomy and volition. Um, oh. Which is interesting because that's that's a Kantian argument, and I and I mentioned Kant in the book, but like, yeah, it's the the technology is designed to remove our ability to make our own decisions. I think people are aware of that. I think on some level they know that. Yeah. But it's sort of like I smoked in my twenties. Yeah. And a thousand people a day could have said like, you know, that's bad for you, and I'd be like, yep. <laughs> you know, like we know. There's also a certain amount of 
self-harm that that is also makes us feel autonomous like sure. yeah well I'm, fuck, I'm fucking myself up fuck you i don't care you know yeah and i think there's there there is that element of it too like i think i really do think if you asked a lot of people do you really think the internet like all this stuff do you really think it's all super healthy they'd be like yeah probably not you know but whatever what are you gonna do yeah you know? but the, i think the difference between like this and smoking is that this also ha- – there's social harms. So it's because all – like our cultural narratives are defined by the media we consume. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's – and if the media we consume is like vastly skewed towards emotional reactions and outrage, then our cultural narratives get skewed. And when our cultural narratives are skewed, then we like don't have an accurate depiction of – you know, what's ap- actually happening in the world, what's important in society. You know, we end up with Jesse Smollett on TV for six hours straight, and there's, like, no discussion of taxes or healthcare or prison reform or whatever, when it's like that actually affects millions of lives. So there's a disconnect between uh, what drives attention and what drives um, engagement and, like, what actually... Uh, like improves lives. Yeah, uh, if if we can, I think it's important to use it all. Most people won't, but use it <laughs> responsibly in the sense of either understanding that there's a disconnect, understanding that there's a certain level of um, uh, in, enhanced. There are enhancements in social media that are designed to fuel your most basic emotions, so that you engage, so that you stay on the platforms longer, and so maybe that means like. You know, reminding ourselves of that, forcing ourselves to step away for certain amounts of time, maybe not having certain social media apps on your phone, yep. maybe saying if I'm if I engage in internet stuff for this many hours a week, then I also have to engage in real world activities yep. with other people this many times a week, or donate time to a charitable cause or volunteer. Absolutely. That that we that we have to because this is the, the internet stuff is responsibility. And I think people just want – they don't want to have to do the work for it. You know, It's yeah. like they think it's all about convenience and ease of use. But really I think it actually creates a much much more societal responsibility than, yes. than we realize because we have to go out of our way to not get stuck in that space. Oh, I got the analogy. Great. Social media is like smoking except everybody is smoking in the same room. That's right. So, so it's like a smoking lounge in an airport. Yes, exactly. So it, it's like – the more people you cram in, it's like, okay, yeah, if you want to smoke, that's fine. But the more people you cram into that room, it's just the more the, the more secondhand spread. smoke, the more the secondhand smoke, the more that where it just, you know, the more the cancer spreads. Yeah. yeah. Cause there are some, there, you know, there are some airports. I don't know if it's so, if it's common anymore, but, but there are some airports that you walk through and I've been in a lot of them where it's just like the, the smoking lounge is just a fucking glass box. Yeah, yeah. So you're just like walking and it's like airport, airport, airport. Fucking Scotland, you know, where it's just like this thick <laughs> fog of people in there. And it's like, wow, it's, you know, like they're getting first and secondhand smoke at the same time. It's like double smoke. So you don't even need to light a cigarette. No. You, you just walk in. and No, and that, that's all it is. You just sort of breathe in. So is there, you know, there's like, is there like secondhand social media? It's like, that's kind of what we're... And and I and I do you know I feel like I've been taking social media to task a lot in the last handful of episodes. And it's not... I do think that it's... 
it, I mean, whatever. It's a tool. It's neutral. It's just like, yeah. uh, you know, a, ha- a, 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 a hammer is evil if you beat someone to death with it, yeah. or it's useful if you use it to build a house. Yeah, and social media is an easy target right now. Like, it, it's it's kind of a popular punching bag. Yes. And, and, and I, I go through a lot of pains in the book to, like, not single it out. Like, I use it as an example a number of times, but I, I really do think that a lot of these assumptions... And a lot of like what's going like a lot of what we consider like good innovations, um, there are side effects. You know, it's like uh, and again, it's what we were talking about: too much comfort, uh, optimizing for people's emotions rather than for like what's good for people. Um, you know, creating skewed perceptions of like what the world is or what the world's like for the sake of you know profit. Um, you know, I think you could you could make an argument that this thing is it's most noticeable in social media, but I mean it occurs in a million different places. I mean everything from our smartphones to our video games to um, you know networking tools, like everything. It's just it's it's becoming comfort is pr- the primary bottom line for most of the things that we invest in and pursue, and um, and comfort at a certain point starts backfiring. Yeah, I mean it. Which again loops back to the book, where it's yes. like we need a certain, we need that Goldilocks zone of suffering and pain. But it's funny to me that you know in the last couple of years, a handful of like founding Silicon Valley guys have come out and said like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> yes, I was on the dev team at Facebook, but I am here to tell you." That it is bad. It's like we designed it at like a drug yeah. and it is fucking up society and it's fucking you up. Like there's a handful of people. In the back of my mind, I always think, did you give all that money back? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's it's one thing. So I, I, one thing I do talk about in the, in the in in one of the chapters is is so what, I started my web first web business in like 07, 08. And, uh, you know, I, I studied marketing. I studied copywriting, sales. And because I was doing like online marketing stuff. And, and I talk about in the book how like one of the first things, if you study copywriting and sales, one of the first things you learn is the way you sell somebody something is you find their pain point. You find like what they feel bad about in their lives and you poke on it. Oh, no. And then you tell them that your product is the solution. You know, sure. it's, so it's everything from like, you know, beer commercials showing girls in bikinis and like, you know, truck commercials like flying over mountain ridges it's like oh you're being adventurous man you know and it's yeah. like couch, you know the dude who's a couch potato sitting there he's like yeah i want to be adventurous i want to be yeah. i want to be tied to that in some yeah. way. <laughs> and so i mean this is just marketing 101 like it's it's the basis of so much of like our commercial life is designed around like poking at insecurities and feeding into our narratives of like that's shame so and funny self-loathing. To me. That, that's basically like that's basically like like companies and products are negging us like yeah. like the game they're like totally. negging us they're like hey wait a minute totally hey wait but dude dude most pua stuff came from sales like it it's like straight up sales tactics just, of course, just used on women to like get them to hook up with you. Oh yeah. my god! And that and that's again, it's so true. <laughs> it's know? like you demonstrate value, you you poke at their pain points, you like offer you offer a solution to their problems. You know, it's just like yeah, you, you, to, you escalate, you create the problem. It's just it's, uh, it's you know like uh, like like breath. 
You yeah. know, like, <laughs> hey, you've got bad breath. I do, but we have a solution for that. Oh, my God, I'm so glad. Yeah. I didn't know I had that thing before, but now that I know, you know, like, it's so, yeah. oh, my gosh, that's great. Yeah, so it is. Although, I feel like most most clickbaity stuff isn't really giving the solution, though. It's just poking at the insecurity to increase, increase engagement. It doesn't, it doesn't say, you know... Uh, it just says, hey, here's this fu- – hey, psst, here's this really fucked up thing. Yeah. You know, like everyone's got some friend who always likes to deliver bad news because sure. it, it's empowering. Like yep. you, pay, you listen to that yeah. person and you lean in and you pay attention, you know, because, oh, my God, they've got bad news and I need to hear this bad news. Yeah. And that's basically what the news media has become. But they're not offering solutions. It's just like, hey, psst, hey, but this, oh, my God, that's fucking terrible. Yeah, I would comment about that on a Well, page. I would argue that the ideology is the solution. So, you know, Fox News has its solution, uh, MSNBC has its solution, and it's, it's what it is, is it's the overall arching ideology. So it, 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 they'll show you this awful, awful story of like, you know, some homeless kid who like got screwed over by some government service or something. And it, and it's like the, the implication, the way it's framed, the way it's presented, the implication has some ideological agenda. And it's the same thing with, right-wing news media and it's um it's essentially it's 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 weaponizing information and i mean that's always occurred uh to a certain degree i just think it's when you network the planet you amplify that weaponization to like the nth degree and everyone realizes that oh just to get attention all you have to do is do that and then you start unpacking the story and you realize like oh uh this video wasn't even really connected to that thing this kid's actually not homeless yeah. that wasn't that yeah, it's this like completely different thing you know but most people aren't going to go that deep no. and the the news media the next day isn't going to go oh we may have made a mistake Oops. they're just going to be like uh, who even remembers yesterday? That was four <laughs> outrage cycles ago. Who fucking cares? Now we're bad about this other thing. And you're yeah. like, and you forget about that and forget that they fucked you over the day before. Be like, oh my God, now I'm upset about this. You yeah. Know? And it, the cycle just repeats. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're wieners, you know, because it's all like the, you know, like we can blame social media, we can blame the news media, but it's, you know, it's like seeing tabloids at the grocery store. Like, this is disgusting. Why do they? And it's like, because people buy it. Yeah. Like, we are responsible, <laughs> but no one ever thinks. It's the same way with voting, where everyone, everyone has this dim view of themselves like well it doesn't matter if i it doesn't matter if i vote i'm yeah. just one person it doesn't matter if i i mean tabloids might be bad but it doesn't matter cuz i'm just one person so what does it matter if i and it's like because if everyone thinks that that's a problem yep. then you're an unconscious swarm that doesn't know it's a swarm and it's not too different than the smoker who's trying to quit being like well what's one more cigarette exactly well, what's one more cigarette yeah. you know it, it's it's uh the world is made up of just one more yeah you know and so is the solution the solution is just to sort of be aware that that's the case and to fight it as much as you can yeah. well, <laughs> within I, yourself. I think I mean this is why I harp so much on values because I think I think it's like you need to find your values and you need to be I don't want to say uncompromising on them but I, I when I say uncompromising I don't mean it in like a like a conflict sort of way, you know, I mean, uncompromising in terms of like yourself, like you adhere to them, like you, you, you stand up for them, you, you invest in them, you cut out the bullshit that doesn't matter and it, you, you stick to it. And it's, um, it's hard. It's very difficult. You fail a lot, but, um, I think it's, it is paramount in this day and age that we develop a better ability to do this. The, the ability to sift through all the noise and all the garbage and pick out like the two or three things that like really are important and just stay with them. Um, because if we don't, 
you know, it's, and look, all these things, like you said, there's always going to be people that just click every clickbait. There's always going to be people who buy tabloids, but there's a certain, there's always tipping points, you know? So, um, it's, if even like 30, 40% of the population decides, wait, I'm sick of these clickbait fucking stories, you know, like that, that has a massive effect on the bottom line of all these outlets. Yeah. If they didn't work, they wouldn't do them. Exactly. So if you stop. And so I think it's, again, it's people finding a Goldilocks zone in themselves of feeling like they matter enough, but that they don't mean everything. Yes. Because it's like either extreme is bad. If you feel like you're not, I mean, times, you know, like there've been times when, you know, I've engaged like some, someone says something really trolly and I, and I kind of engage them and they're like, whoa, what the fuck does my opinion matter to you? And then they almost don't respect you even more because they don't respect <laughs> themselves. And they're like, yeah. why the fuck you have X, Y, and Z? Why does my, I, I don't mean anything. So it's like it, ma- making sure that people feel like they matter enough and, and understanding they matter enough that their vote counts, yeah. that choices that they make count, but not so much of an over significance that it's like, well, my opinion is fact and yeah i mean everything so it's like how do we find that 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 perfect little goldilocks zone in, in self-worth it's hard man it is hard that's it's the hard. daily struggle and it feels like the goalpost is always moving and it's a sliding sliding scale but oh i had a weird side question which is why do you not read your books in the audiobook version because i listened to the audiobook version of subtle art and it was not you oh so th- there's a really easy explanation for that um I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Ryan Holiday talked. We both talked about how, like, doing an audiobook, it sucks. Like, it's it, not it, fun. It's not fun. So I did it for this one. Oh, good. I did it for this one, and actually, I had a lot of fun with this one. Good, because um, there's some pretty wacky sections. Um, but yeah, it was funny, and it, it's actually really funny because the guy who did subtle art, like, he he totally hit it out of the park. But it's a funny, it's a funny story, like how I came across him. So I, I was like beyond uninterested in doing the audiobook. Like I just, it sounded like the worst thing on the planet for me to spend my time doing. And, um, and so they kept sending me clips of readers who, you know, I'd listen to their clip and I kept telling them like, you know, I need somebody who can nail the sarcasm, can get the humor and has like a really dry delivery, you know? And they kept sending me clips of guys who are like, and now chapter three. And I'm like, no, like you, you fuckers, like find some hard ass who just like doesn't give a fuck about life, who can like just deadpan deliver, you know, some really dry humor. And so finally we get like 11 or 12 narrators deep and they send me this guy and I hear the voice and he says something funny and I'm like, okay, cool. That's him. Like, perfect. They're like, all right, sweet jump ahead like three or four months, I start getting emails from people who are like, hey, I'm really excited for your audiobook, but why did you pick the romance novel guy to read it? <laughs> and so so I go to I go to Audible and like I type in the guy's name and uh sure enough like sixty romance novels come up and I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? Oh he still no. did a good job though. No, he can't argue with it. results. He killed it and it's funny because he did such a good job and um and now he's getting tons of like self-help books but you know what and even as fun as it was the one thing that i missed because i love i love hearing an author read their own book yeah because even if it's unconscious you tell your story best yes and so i'm so happy to hear that you did this one because 
it's you can tell subtly what parts are important to yeah. you. Yeah. And so like it then in a way it's like you're sitting down and you are telling me like this is there's this whole other layer to this book as told by me. Um, so I'm so glad I'm so glad that you did this one because yeah. I think that's going to be. Did you record it already? Yeah, oh, it's good. already done. Yeah, um, and yeah, and just in this day and age, you know, uh, like audiobooks are becoming so big now. Yeah, that it, it's it's becoming expected for the author to do it. So, um, and I actually I kind of enjoyed it. Like once I got over the initial like, oh really? Like you know, you get a couple hours into it, you kind of get a groove going. You're like, yeah, this is fun. Like this is nice. Yeah, but you get a couple more hours past that, and words don't mean anything yeah. anymore. <laughs> you see the word cat like ten times, and you can't remember what it means. Yeah, like, yeah. letters just start looking like glyphs. There, like, there would be like random words that I couldn't pronounce anymore. Like I remember, I think the first day I couldn't say the word champion. Like, <laughs> like we got like four hours in, and just every time we got to the word champ, I'd be like ch- champion. Chan- <laughs> Champion, <laughs> you know, and like the New Orleans champion. Yeah, I just have to like go back, do it again, go back, do it again. You know, then that's when you go like, I think I might need to sleep yeah. for like a yeah. night. And then my last question is, how long did you play Zelda Breath of the Wild? I think I logged, I was well over two hundred hours. Yeah, it, for sure. So I played through it twice. Um, I did just like a normal playthrough, and then I I did a uh, master mode with mm-hmm. the DLC. I did not do that. Um, it's such a it's one of my favorite games ever. It's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. So I probably logged like two hundred, two fifty. Oh my god! Um, did all the DLC side quests? Got like six hundred Kuroks or whatever the fuck those things are. Fuck. Um, yeah, I put way too much time. Into it. <laughs> way too much time. Yeah, I've I've been I've just been experimenting with learning with taking this amount of time that I was doing playing video games and like learning Italian and learning an instrument and learning. <laughs> Why would you do that? I mean, seriously, <laughs> what would be the point of that when I could go through and get the Hyrule shield or yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just get like a certain, a certain shield set or a sword or whatever. I mean, it's still, if like I can even hear the menu selection sound effect in my head oh my and God. it instantly calms me down. It's like Pavlov. It is. Yeah. yeah. Because it was such a beautiful and my wife was like, oh, fuck, Animal Crossing's coming out on the Switch this fall. And we played a ton of Animal Crossing when we first started dating. Yeah. And it's an incredibly fun, silly, immersive, time-wasting game that is apparently going to be more layered and dense than it was before. <laughs> and I'm like, Lids, I don't think I can do it again. And she was like, you have to play with me. And I'm like, fuck. Because yeah. just, it's just going to eat so much of my time Dude. because I love it so fucking much. This is, this is always how you know you're talking to a real gamer, yeah. is that you have this, like, awful love-hate relationship with video games you know it's it's like there's this whenever i hear there's like an exciting new game coming out there's like this panic you know it's like oh fuck (laughs) i don't have enough time for a new witcher game oh (laughs) yeah i know well lydia had never played skyrim and it came out on switch and so she bought a copy for me and i was i almost got mad i was like no what are you doing to me it's almost like it's almost like it's not quite the same. It would almost be like if she bought me a six-pack of beer after yeah. 16 years of sobriety. Be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, don't you understand? I was just filling houses in different holds with cabbages. Like, I wasn't even – I didn't – wasn't anything I have to do anymore, and I was still fucking running I around, know. you know, know. Tamriel. You know what I found – you know what I found about video games, though? And it's, it's interesting because it's – you know, so I stopped playing – I played way too much when I was young, and then I stopped playing for like ten years when I was I did the same thing. building my business. It's funny how many guys I meet who who do this, and then you get sucked back in because the games look real cool. They look really cool, and you're older, and you're like, you know, you get married, and, yeah. and you're like hanging out at home a lot, and you're like, well, shit, I got extra money, like yeah. I can buy any video game I want, yeah, you know, and um, 
so I got back into it in my 30s. And uh, it's interesting. As an adult now, I can kind of see it. Like, I still play probably, like, five hours a week or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's my favorite way to just kind of unwind and chill out on a Saturday morning or, you know, on a Tuesday night or whatever. But I noticed that when things are really going well with work and in my life in general, an hour is enough. Like, mm-hmm. an hour... I can sit down for an hour and I'm like, okay, that was fun. And then like I get up and there's no problem. What I've started noticing is that when I fall into that pit of like 13 hour grinds and like, <laughs> and like, oh no, I need every shield. Like, yes. you know, it's when that starts happening, I've noticed it's because there's something in my life that I'm not happy with or that I'm like, oh, interesting. I'm avoiding. And so it took me a few years to start realizing that, but it's, and then as soon as I go and kind of like fix it up, you know, it's like, there's something at work that was pissing me off and it's like kind of get it all set straight. And then I go back to, I go back to Zelda and I'm like, all right, 30 minutes, that's enough. Yeah. You, you went, you actually found the work shield. Yeah. And that's, like, <laughs> you, you completed, you had to complete that. I got, class. I got a hundred percent my career, man. You know, I got, I got to get all the achievements. <laughs> I have to find every work Karak. I can possibly, you know, you can only, you keep killing Bokoblins and then the work Bokoblins just keep popping. That's actually kind of funny. It that's is actually kind of, kind of what the book is. It's, it's like it. no matter how many bulk, work Bokoblins, there's always a blood moon. <laughs> around the corner and those motherfuckers just respawn like that's basically that's basically life is fucking Zelda life is Zelda man Uh, I don't think there's a better way to end than that That, Um, everything is fucked a book about hope Um, is is this when is this out May 14th May 14th so hopefully it's out when people hear this yeah we'll we'll time it so that it comes out at the same time so uh, thank you so much it was such an honor to meet you yeah man this was fun I really you know I've recommended your book to a lot of people it's been recommended back to me in the self-improvement subreddit I see it pop up all the time you know people are like yeah this one's pretty cool you know it's like people try to be cool about stuff they're like yeah I mean it's you know it really it's pretty good it helped a lot it's alright yeah yeah, it's alright I mean I I pretty much did everything the book said you know (laughs) but it's only read it three times I only read it three times it's only three times (laughs) but uh, but uh, but it was really nice to meet you in person and thank you so much for for coming out it's been a pleasure thank you alright the end sweet uh, well, well this is our guest book. So you have Life to- is Zelda. Well, it's, it's perfect. Life is Zelda. Life is Zelda. That was- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This was the ID10T podcast number 1005 with Mark Manson. Uh, definitely read his books um, <laughs> and absorb them. Uh, there's, there's a lot of nuggets in there that I think you will be able to take away and apply and grow and learn and evolve. And... Um, I don't know, I'm kind of in the mood today for the word salad wrap to talk about the concept of happiness. Everyone pursues it like a drug. And um, and I think because we look at it like a drug, like it's this thing that we're going to somehow get to, uh, like a goal, a specific event, I- I've been wondering if that's not really the right way to 
think about happiness. Well, I, I know it isn't. <laughs> I, I don't think it is. Um, and so I'll sort of uh, expand on this, this idea and maybe this, will, maybe this will help you sort of feel better about how you kind of adjust your goals and what you think about happiness. Because I think happiness is really like a, a state rather than an event. And it's not really an event-based thing. But I think what a lot of people, and certainly not all people, but I think what a lot of people tend to do is that they, this, I even think that the term the pursuit of happiness is the wrong way to even think about it. I think that's the wrong paradigm because it, it isn't necessarily something you chase after because it's not, it's not a material thing. And I think framing it in that way makes us think that it's some sort of a material thing that we have to attain or earn or complete a series of quests <laughs> to reveal. And I really think it's just a, a general state of being, a general state of peace, a, a lack of ups and downs and drama. And um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. It's when you're younger, it's very, or maybe people do this their whole lives, but it's very easy to mistake lust for love because you get all caught up in a chemistry with someone and you're consumed, you know, you're consumed by each other. And, oh my God, this is the most amazing. People go, oh my God, this is love. And sometimes it is, but love, I don't believe, um, is that spiky, you know, it's like chasing a high. I don't think love is a high and I don't think happiness is a high. Uh, I think those things can occur with love and can occur with happiness, but they in and of themselves are more of a byproduct of a situation and a rush, uh, chemical rush in your brain rather than a state, uh, a state of being. Um, I've been working out with the same trainer, Tom, for, oh my gosh, oh, 14 years maybe. And when I was younger, you know, when I would work out, I would always want to feel something like, yeah, I felt, I feel something, I'm feeling it. I'm doing stuff. I'm fit. I'm working out because I feel it. Yeah. And then the older you get, listen, it's really easy to get injured. You can hurt your neck just from looking over there real fast. Or you can uh, fuck up your knee just because you drove for 45 minutes. And so I said to Dom recently, uh, it's funny, when I was younger, I really used to work out to feel something. And now I stay fit the goal is to not feel anything because <laughs> if I'm feeling something, there's probably something wrong. You know what I mean? So the goal is just to not feel anything. And that absence of feeling is a very scary thing because we trick ourselves into thinking like, oh, well, if I'm not, if I'm not feeling anything, I'm not doing anything. And if you're not doing anything, you're not achieving anything. But that's very goal-based thinking and result-oriented thinking. And to say like, not feeling anything doesn't mean that you have to be empty in a shell. It just means uh, you don't need to chase those spikes, you know, that I got to feel the burn in my muscles or I got to, you know, I got to feel like I'm really doing something. I need to feel to be alive. Like you can just be alive <laughs> and feel peaceful with that. That's okay. That is okay. You don't have to distract yourself. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit and, and be proud of who you are and be content with who you are. And again, it goes back to the idea of happiness because I think we can get so caught up chasing 
happiness like a high, but I don't necessarily think it's just a subtle shift in readjusting how you define happiness. Because if you just look at it as like clearing off all the clutter, clearing off all the bullshit, you know, being content, being peaceful with who you are, I think that's happiness. It's not the spike of, oh, I'm so happy. Like that's just a, I guess let's call it situational lust, <laughs> you know? And maybe this is just more of a, a, a breakdown for people who are in recovery, um, you know, who were alcoholics or whatever and who sort of live that way. But it's, but it's, it's just the idea that it can be very easy, you know, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling empty, to get addicted to the idea of that physical rush. But I don't think that rush is true happiness, nor is drama in a relationship passion, nor is lust love. Uh, and I don't think, you know, lust is necessarily something that has to be sexual. Lust is, you know, it's that lust for life. It's that sort of Iggy Pop idea. But, you know, lust for life always <laughs> also has a little bit of a dirty negative connotation to it, too. Kind of like, yeah, do all the drugs, eat all the cakes, stay up all night. Yeah, party time. We're living. We're living. <laughs> I don't know if... That necessarily is. I think it's an epic amount of distraction <laughs> from yourself and from your feelings. But you know what? I think for long, for like long-standing peace and for that long-standing state of contentment and happiness, I don't think that's a good long-term plan. You know, people who pursue lust as an idea in any form, situational or in any form, uh, burn out really fast. And then they get addicted. They need that high again and they need it again and again. It's just like, you know, likes on social media. Oh, I got likes. So I got to get more. I got to get more. I need more of this. I need more of that. So maybe, uh, I guess as I'm sort of wrapping this up, the if you sort of sh if you subtly shift your thinking into uh from one of a result oriented happiness a pursuit that you have to chase and rather as a state of being and contentment and being okay with yourself and just sort of wiping all of that um you know i have to have that adrenaline spike um feeling to feel happy to do something again it's if you were really breaking it down it's just the idea of being versus doing Right, it is having. In other words, what do you have rather than what are you going to achieve to feel content? What do you have that you can be content about rather than what are you delaying your contentment for for something that you're going to you know that you probably can achieve, and then that moment is gone, and then you have to pursue something else because you need that rush again. So, again, this this may not be for everybody. But I do – it is something that I've been really fascinated by lately, um, uh, you know, chasing happiness rather than chase, – chasing moments and situations rather than just being. What do you have that you can be thankful for? What do you have that you can be content with? You know, you're, you're probably – there's a good chance you're already okay and you don't even know it because <laughs> you're just looking outward. It all goes back to the idea of internal reference points as opposed to – uh, external reference points that you think are going to fix you. So um, be happy. <laughs> and that doesn't mean become happy. Sometimes I think, 
you know, that idea of don't worry, be happy, don't worry, people think become happy. No, be, be happy. You can and you deserve it. And I appreciate you. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, and I'll see you in your ears real soon. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges. They will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. Thousands, not millions. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The GOAT. Stream free on Amazon Freeview or Prime Video. 